Well, hello and welcome back, you guys. It has been a while, actually, since I've been recording and even longer since I have been really maintaining this whole system. But welcome back to the Realm of Unknown podcast. Today is, I believe, episode 6, although there is technically 8 out there. I believe this is the 6th like official episode, I if that makes any sense. Uh, episode in the regards of chronological subject matter. I'm not uh, including the unknown reports as well as the little update I did last week because I am very overbooked when it comes to senior year at the moment. I'm, if you could tell, I'm a little sick as well. But uh, for the most part, I've just been working on a lot of my thesis work and uh, getting my portfolio together for my graphic design uh, major. It is pretty time-consuming, and right now I am currently in the crisis of having to rework a lot of stuff about three weeks into the semester, which is almost unheard of, but I think this will be a positive change. And I'm, I'll keep you guys posted because I kind of like how this might turn out. We'll see if I can execute it properly. Uh, the operative word here is being might, but we'll see. Uh, but today I'm actually really excited because I have a pretty interesting topic for you guys. It's definitely something that if you know of the paranormal world or just community in general, you've probably heard of this story. If you watched any like ghost hunting show or followed a group like that they've probably mentioned this location before and i myself have actually discussed this over on my youtube channel with a similar name realm of unknown i believe about two years ago at this point and it's been something that it was some one of the locations that definitely sparked my interest in the paranormal in general so without further ado i will gladly introduce you guys to Bobby Mackey's Music World. Now, a little disclaimer before we begin, because I, again, I did mention this over on YouTube before. This is a slightly awkward format because this is such a unique location. And for the most part, I'm going to actually focus a lot on the history as well as some of the information and documentation that I was able to scrounge up through a bunch of different articles, research sites, and other type of information. Obviously, I can't visit this location freely. It's over in Kentucky, and I am currently a student on his senior year in PA. So it's not that likely that I could just do a day trip and go over and test all this stuff out on my own. I hope one day I can visit this location because I'd be interested to figure out all this stuff on my own terms. But as my YouTube video and the comments over there have so delicately told me uh, that my opinion, I guess, not even not even my opinion, uh, me stating anything about this location without prior visitation of it is just blasphemy. So if anyone is in that mindset, okay, whatever. If anyone's not, cool. I'm just talking about a location. It's a building in the middle of nowhere. Big whoop. All right, so <laughs> I it's just weird. I don't know why people get so defensive about this stuff, honestly. It, it's, it's an interesting topic to talk about, and in the end, all it is is just a discussion. And I just wanted to get that out of the way first because, again, it will probably come up not here through how you guys are listening, but because the podcast is now up on YouTube if you want to go check it out, if you listen to it over there. And uh, iTunes as well, I guess, now. Um, 
you can re- leave reviews there and on YouTube, obviously the comment system. So for that regard, I will be expecting a lot. So if you are, if you're, if you're in my YouTube subscribers, hello, thank you for listening. But uh, I'm expecting a few listeners on that platform to kind of revisit from the other video and we'll see how that goes. But I've been rambling on long enough, so I will begin. So Bobby Mackey's Music World is a nightclub and honky-tonk, which is essentially a bar that strictly or primarily plays country music for its patrons. It is located in Wilder, Kentucky, owned by country singer Bobby Mackey. And oh boy, this location has a boatload of stories and legends linking the site back to hauntings, murders, suicides alike. However, there is no credible evidence as of yet that exists in order to validate these claims uh, is very similar to a lot of haunted locations that people uh, presume to be like these these hell holes on earth there there's no firm firm evidence that the scientific community will very strongly latch onto just yet who knows and something this is going to again be something that we're going to be brought up later so believe me i will get to it And again, I did talk about this several years ago, but with this topic now for you guys, I have done a lot more research, and as you can tell, it took me about two weeks to get this one up, and this week alone, I was still going back and adding new things and fixing up the script. The script is about 18 pages long this time, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, But like I said, without further ado, let's get into some more of the backstory and ghosts. So Bobby Mackey's Music World, who actually just previously passed its 40th year anniversary uh, as an establishment as a whole, uh, not the building, but the ownership of Bobby Mackey's, it stands as one of America's most well-known haunted locations. Among investigators and casual paranormal fans alike, the club is located at 44 Lickin Pike at Wilder, Kentucky, The location is highly popularized as having a colorful history chock full of tales involving gambling, prohibition, violence, organized crime, music, and assortment of supernatural events and chaos. You know, as one does as your local establishment. So getting into some of the legends surrounding the location, there are two in particular that we should discuss before really getting into the nitty gritty. So two of the most popular legends associated with the location both feature tragic events involving a female individual. The building is said to be haunted by two men who murdered a young pregnant woman known as Pearl Bryan. The two men cut off her head and disposed of it into one of the on-site drains, in which many describe as being now a satanic sacrifice. This same quote-unquote well, I'm calling it a quote because I'll describe it later, has uncovered, was uncovered decades later by the caretaker of the location, now Bobby Mackey's Music World. With this discovery, a quote-unquote portal to hell was then said to have been opened, sending forth darkness and opening the building to a slew of paranormal occurrences. This same caretaker then claimed to be possessed by the newly freed evil that came from this well. The basement area, and subsequently the well-slash-drainage spot, has been promoted as the prominent site for occult activities, 
something stated across the Bobby Mackey's website and is frequently part of the paranormal-themed tours that the location very frequently hosts. The basement is also the location of a former dressing room in which they were occupied by the performers of the Upstairs Club. As the story goes, Joanna, the second girl in these legends, was a dancer in the club within around the 1940s and is said to have fallen in love with a man who her father, a local mobster, didn't exactly approve of. Her struggle was then recorded in a mysterious journal, which was suspiciously also found by the exact same caretaker who found the well from earlier. Joanna's love faced his death at the hands of the mob, and in the result, Joanna poisoned herself in the dressing room shortly after receiving the news. Very much a Romeo and Juliet style story, you know, the whole suicide after heartbreak type thing. A final love poem apparently was also penned on the wall of the dressing room shortly before her death. Neither of these stories, both the one involving Joanna and the one involving Pearl, however, hold very much ground when it comes to the scrutiny surrounding the building today and the extremely popularized hauntings that it entails, so we'll get into that. Alright, so let's get into the paranormal aspects of this location. Now, all the paranormal stories seem to have spiked after this event occurred, which is being Bobby Mackey buying the location and subsequently the caretaker finding the well. So that's kind of was, if we have a timeline going, this is the starting point. Mackey himself has never actually reported experiencing any sort of paranormal trouble. Others, however, have reported both physical and emotional attacks while at the location. This includes his late wife, Janet, who was allegedly attacked by some sort of invisible entity. Other people have claimed that they have been assaulted by forces that threw them across the room. Employees, visitors, and paranormal investigators reported experiences with shadow people, misforms, disembodied voices, balls of light, strong feelings of other beings present in the room with them, and recordings of electronic voice phenomena, or EVPs. About 40 different spirits have been identified as inhabiting the location by visitors along with a slew of self-proclaimed psychics and mediums. A dark entity is also said to be present and is particularly dangerous to women who visit the location. And now we're going to go a little more detailed in this type of stuff. It's still going to be the the stories. That was just kind of a brief rundown. Again, it's a very weird structure. It's 18 pages, so I had to do a little odd cutting and stuff, so we'll see how it goes. Now, clearly I can't go into all of the stories and reports. I'll touch on more of the base important ones. So if you have your own stories or evidence from the investigations that you you yourself have personally had, I would love to hear them. So please let me know either through my email or through Twitter or whatever. They'll be at the very end of this video. Uh, but just keep in mind, I can't touch base on everything. But this is going to be the more generalized slash important aspects of the hauntings. So to start things off, we're going to be talking about Carl Lawson, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, who was the first employee hired by Bobby Mackey. Lawson was a loner who worked as a caretaker and a handyman in the tavern. He's the same handyman that we discussed earlier as being the one who found the journal and found the well. He lived alone in an apartment in the upstairs of the building and spent a lot of time in the building after hours. 
This is when he began reporting that he was seeing and hearing bizarre things within the club. People around town first assumed that he was just simply going crazy, but later on, however, others began to reportedly have strange events and occurrences while visiting the location. I double-check at the end of the night to make sure that everything is turned off, when I come back down hours later and the bar lights would be on. The front doors would be unlocked when I knew that I had locked them. The jukebox would be playing the anniversary waltz, even though I unplugged it and the power was turned off. A quote from Lawson being told to the author Doug Hensley, this Hensley, who is currently writing down Lawson's reports of the haunted tavern. We will talk about him later, but Lawson's just quoted as saying that. The first ghost that Lawson actually reported seeing in the place was that of a dark, angry man that he saw standing behind the bar. Even though others were present at the time of the sighting, it seems as though it was only meant for his eyes. A short time later, Doug began to experience visions of the spirit who called herself Joanna. She would often speak to Lawson, and he was able to answer her and supposedly carry out conversations. The rumors quickly started stirring up that Lawson was simply talking to himself and going a little cuckoo, until Lawson claimed that Joanna had a tangible presence, often leaving behind a scent of roses after their interaction together. Odd sounds and noises often occupied the sightings, and Lawson soon realized that the spirits seemed to be stronger in the basement near an old sealed-up well that had been left there in the days in which the slaughterhouse stood on the location. The urban legends surrounding the area, Carl knew, stated that the well was once been used for satanic rituals. Some of the local folks referred to it as the Gates to Hell. Although he wasn't a particularly religious man, Lawson decided to sprinkle some holy water on the old well one night, thinking that it may bring some relief to the spirits. Instead, it seemed to provoke them, and the activity in the building spiked from this point onward. And again, this isn't really a well so much as a drainage little area. It's not that big. Soon, other employees and patrons of Bobby Mackey's began to have their own weird experiences. People began to tell stories of objects that would move around on their own, lights turning themselves on and off, and disembodied voices, laughters, and much more. Bobby Mackey himself was not too happy about the ghostly rumors that had been starting to spur up around town. Carl started telling stories, and I told him to keep quiet about it. I didn't want it getting around, because I had everything I owe stuck into this place. I had to make a success out of it. A quote that Mackey is reported to have said, now, Bobby Mackey was not one to believe in ghosts or the supernatural, and he didn't want his customers believing in such ridiculous stories either. But around this point in the story is when Mackey's wife, Janet, began to come forward with her own stories and odd occurrences. Janet told Bobby that she too had experienced strange activity. She had seen the ghost, had felt the overwhelming presence, and had even smelled Joanna's signature rose scent throughout the building. Janet also had her own personally frightening experience in the basement. While she was down there, she was suddenly overcome with the scent of roses and felt something unseen swirl around her. 
Janet recalls feeling as though something was grabbing onto her waist. She's quoted as saying, It picked me up and threw me back down. I got away from it, and when I got to the top of the stairs, there was a presence behind me, pushing me down the steps. I looked back up, and a voice was screaming, Get out, get out. At the time of this terrifying occurrence, Janet was five months pregnant, a shared connection with the supposed events surrounding Pearl Bryan. So I'm going to list off a few more stories and things that people supposedly report while visiting this location. Roger Heath, who often worked odd jobs in the club, remembered a summer morning when he and Carl Lawson were working alone in the building. Heath was moving some light fixtures from the dance floor and Lawson was carrying them down into the basement. Just before lunch, however, Lawson came up from the stairs and Heath noticed that there was a small handprint on the back of his shirt, as if someone or something had been hugging him from behind without his knowledge. Aaron Fay, a hostess at the club, also confessed to encountering the supposed spirit of Joanna. She had laughed one day at Lawson when he was talking about the ghost, but quickly stopped once she began to notice the strong scent of a rose perfume filling the room. Several individuals claimed to have also been physically assaulted by these spirits within the club, and one customer even tried to sue Bobby Mackey in 1994, claiming that he was attacked in the restroom by a ghost wearing a cowboy hat. However, this case was later dropped and dismissed. Contractors working on the building have also been slapped, growled at, scratched, and pushed while working on the location. Men have supposedly been thrown across the room by an unseen force, and a female spirit dressed in all white has also been spotted out in the parking lot, often vanishing into thin air shortly after someone sees her. There have been numerous sightings of a headless spirit of what people presume to be Pearl Brine, and Joanne is often known to sing along with the music that plays in the club. Furniture moves around on its own, and the sound of banging and loud, nightmarish-like screams can be heard throughout the building. People refuse to go downstairs into the basement, as before we mentioned that it is presumably the epicenter of all this paranormal activity. Or even just going near this well, because people claim that they have such a strong and strange effect while near this particular location. So this is either, also last one here, this is either the same or a different spirit of a mysterious cowboy lurking on the location, but this one seems to prefer the basement. And a deep growl are also supposedly heard coming from the well, leading many to believe and connect this back to the well being a sort of portal or gateway to hell or another location. Now, Bobby Mackey's has also been featured on several television series about paranormal investigations. It was featured on the 2006 episode of the television series A Haunting, along with being featured multiple times on event, uh, Adventure Time, Ghost Adventures, with Zach Bagan and the crew Zack documented his belief that he was possessed by a demonic force while investigating the club. He also claimed to have been in contact with a ghost of a convicted murderer, 
and people believe that this is the murderer who killed uh, Pearl Bryan. There's no real evidence of this. I don't know. This is technically how I found out about Bobby Mackey's. I learned it through Ghost Adventures, but doing further research, you'll see why I kind of backed away a little bit from the sort of viewpoint that I gained while watching the show. Um, but yeah, the location has greatly capitalized on its violent past as a speakeasy and gangster club, as well as being its original use as a slaughterhouse to enhance its reputation as a spooky location with an unquenchable thirst for blood. Tours to the basement are featured very often and include a viewing of the supposedly haunted, again, quote-unquote, well, it's more of a drainage pipe, uh, which here I'll list, I believe it's about three feet in diameter, 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 and it's about 18 inches deep or so, so it's not that big, but people kind of consider it like the supernatural whirlpool of this location. But again, it's not that massive, so it's it's reasonable to believe that, you know, people just kind of made stories about it. So now we're going to get into more of the history and backstory uh, revolving around the location. So the documented history of Bobby Mackey's location differs from the alleged history currently circulating around the previously mentioned stories and legends associated with the establishment, something that has been repeated throughout media coverage and across all sorts of internet blogs and paranormal sites and yada yada yada, whisper down the lane type stuff. Records from the location can be examined and determine some of the ownership of the location and clear up some of the rumors and stories. The building was constructed dating to be within around 1850, originally serving as a small slaughterhouse, as mentioned earlier. The structure that currently stands is not the original building, as the original building was actually torn down. However, three wells, or quote-unquote wells, these are the apparently um, portal-type stuff that we were mentioning, they're more drains that were located in the basement originally, and now play a role in the paranormal stories. These are said to have been used to drain the blood and waste from the slaughterhouse into the nearby river. Uh, They didn't really have the best way of, I guess, cleaning things up and keeping things humane. So they had that sort of stuff, kind of just shady, you know, put everything into the river, it's fine. So that's just how they operated back in the day. Now, in the 1930s, the building was known as an inn. I don't... I don't know why I didn't have this, but there's a name for it. It it was an inn, okay? It was an inn. But some have it as being listed as a sort of gambling center, but I can't really confirm this, especially since it was during the Depression, during the beginning of this decade. So this was until about 1933 when it was bought up by E.A. Buck Bradley, a local gangster who turned it into a tavern and casino called the Primrose. Casinos and clubs competed during this time for both customers and most of the income. This location wasn't the best. I, sh- I, don't, I haven't been to Kentucky, so I wouldn't know from experience, but back in the 1930s, there was a lot of organized crime and uh, gambling in the location, which we'll talk about. 
This is most prominent with the famous Cleveland Four, a powerful and influential group of organized criminals. There was a mobster by the name of Red Masterson, just quote Red, I don't know why, and he was tasked to take down or take care of Bradley and quote-unquote move him out of the Primrose. This, however, resulted in a confrontation between the two, and Bradley prominently wounded Madderson, and eventually all of this ended the two of them uh, in jail, like arrested in jail and put on trial. The trial, however, fell apart when Madderson refused to identify Bradley as his attacker, which is very odd because Madderson was the one hired to take out Bradley. So I don't know why Madderson was the victim. I don't know. And he is quoted as saying that he would handle this in his own way. Bradley, in turn, sold the Primrose to the Cleveland Force Syndicate, uh, I guess sort of as like payment to get out of this whole debacle, and he soon retired to Florida. Now, about 30 years or so passed from this original purchasing of the building, so back in, I believe, 1933 was what we mentioned. Uh, so this is about 1963, or 64 or 5, and Bradley ended up committing suicide and, and died in Florida. After the Primrose was occupied by now its new syndicate, it was known as the Latin Quarter, which was a luxurious casino. In 1961, an initiative to rid the county of organized crime essentially shut it down. So at this point in history, the authorities are really cracking down on this sort of violent activity. And that's kind of when we see the turn, so to speak, of this location. After all of this, the Latin Quarter closed. Several businesses moved in and out of the location, commonly referred to as the Bloody Bucket, due to the high incidences of violence and crime around the location. In 1973, it became, it became the Hard Rock Cafe, a biker bar, and it is completely in no relation to the currently popular restaurant chain, which has a similar name, the Hard Rock Cafe. Now, several shootings have occurred on the premises, and eventually this cafe or biker bar was shut down in 1977. The club would then reopen in 1978 as what we now know today as Bobby Mackey's Music World. Now, here is the interesting stuff. So, I got a lot of this information from a particular article. I, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but I will be linking up. Uh, my sources and stuff within my Twitter feed and Instagram postings, I guess. I don't have a website yet, but the person and an organization that did most of this research, I did a bit more outside of it just to clarify things and find a little more details on certain aspects. Uh, but they did a fantastic job when it comes to going through like local records and documentations that I can't get personally. So... Kudos to them. Again, it will be listed here somewhere. I don't know where I'll be listing it on, especially on YouTube. You'll have the link. So I'll put that in the description on YouTube. The rest of you guys, if you check out my Twitter, it will be there. So we're heading into the information surrounding the legends of both the Pearl Brine murder case as well as uh, Joanne's suicide. On Saturday, February 1st in 1896, Pearl Bryan's uh, decapitated body, which is gruesome, so bear with me, was discovered on John Locke Orchard in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. 
just across the river for reference from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, along Alexandria Pike Road. The autopsy report shows that Brian had defensive wounds on her arms and legs, indicating that she was alive at the time immediately before her head had been completely removed from her body. So I don't know if this was like the immediate instance, but she was injured po- post-mort? Pre- I don't know. She was hurt before death. I, I can't speak right now. My bones experience isn't coming back. Uh, and as mentioned before, she was about four and a half to five months pregnant. So people link that in relation to the attack that Janet Mackey had with an unseen spirit telling her to get out, get out after something attacked her. So people think that maybe, you know, maybe Pearl was trying to help, but also something was attacking her because she was pregnant. Who knows? Uh, a single set of male footprints not sure how they determine these to be male. We're going back to the uh, Pearl case. Were found leading up the road towards Cavanaugh Reservoir, where authorities found an abandoned reservoir slash water tank covered by a large rock with a bloody handprint on it. The casern was thoroughly investigated and it was found to be empty. So this was after they discovered her body. They found some bloody handprint and tracks that kind of led away from it. Now, a 19th century crime scene investigation was limited, so keep in mind that they don't really have the forensic capacity that we have today, and the the decapitation of a body is a significant blow when it comes to getting an identification. So at this point, you're like, well, how did they identify her? So it wasn't until they had the serial number on her shoes that they could track it back to her hometown in Greencastle, Indiana, where Pearl would eventually be identified. So if she had no shoes on, we would never have known who she was for the, for the most part. So Scott Jackson was convicted of murdering Brian. After Brian's body was identified, her relationship with Jackson and an accomplice by the name of Alonzo Walling, I don't know if I'm saying anyone's name right, was revealed from uh, by authorities. Apparently, Scott Jackson, who was the father of her unborn child, wanted Brian to get an abortion. After several botched abortions later, he allegedly forced her to ingest about 14 grams of cocaine, which was later found in her stomach through the autopsy, which did not kill her but did incapacitate her enough for him to slash her throat and decapitate her head. It's not PG, so I'm sorry, guys. Jackson, upon interrogation, had accused Walling, however, of the murder. Walling, on the other hand, was described as being very impressionable and kind of slow in a sense. He's not the brightest of the bunch, but, you know. Therefore... The police kind of determined that he wasn't really in the right the mental capacity to plan and kind of cohere, coerce this undertaking of the murder. So they kind of dropped that and went in with the mindset upon interrogation that Walling would turn on Jackson and he did and accused Jackson of being her true killer. Both, however, were found guilty and sentenced to death by hangings. So, I guess it didn't really matter. (laughs) They just both kind of bit the bullet there. One news clipping does state that Jackson admitted to the murder the night before he was hanged, and or hung, I guess, and wrote out the statement saying that Walling was innocent and Brian's murder, and that he was the only uh, 
perpetrator. Uh, only a murderer, I guess. I can't even speak today. My gosh. However, at the gallows, when asked what his last words and statement would be, Jackson stated, I have only this to say, that I am not guilty of this crime for which I am being compelled to pay the penalty of my life. So he's been off and on with what's happening, what's true, what's not. So he, I don't know if he's the most reliable source, but he's dead, so we can't really ask him further. Now, it's also alleged in the current legends surrounding this whole case that Alonzo Whaling's last words were that he would haunt the location forever. But, again, that's part of the legend surrounding this stuff. By Jackson's true last words were quoted as saying, That man can save me if he will. I die an innocent man. I was not there when she was killed. So those are his, apparently, last words, not the... Oh, I'm going to curse this land and haunt it forever upon my death. That's kind of tied in with the legend around this sort of stuff and kind of why, I don't know. I'll, when we wrap it up, I'll explain my thoughts on the whole Bobby Mackey's location. I think it's still cool. Don't get me wrong, but just bear with me for a moment. So all news reports, statements made by Jackson and Walling, as well as the court documents show that the case did not occur on Bobby Mackey's site, but rather four miles away. So what I mean by this is I believe it's technically on the property, like property line wise, but it didn't happen in the building. It didn't happen like right there. It happened further away. The route taken by the party was most likely devised based upon avoidance of tollbooth authorities. Therefore, they may have passed the building that night, but there's no indication that they stopped in it and committed the crime. So the legend says they did it there and was like a sacrifice type of stuff, was satanic. But the evidence and investigations state that they may have passed it and performed this murder elsewhere. Now, during police interrogation, both men actually accused each other of throwing Pearl's head off the bridge into the Ohio River, one of the very few uh, statements that both men agreed upon. They had no mention of the supposed well or drainage system that the legend more strongly links to. The chasm on route to the reservoir did have a bloody handprint, as mentioned earlier, but it was empty upon investigation the day the body was discovered. This information can be found within news reports as well as legal documentation. With that, it could be pretty safe to say that her head was not thrown into the well-slash-drainage pipes on Bobby Mackey's location, as many, many stories and legends commonly link the location as being the culprit of. The evidence at the scene indicates that there was only a single person involved, which contrasted the claims that Brian's murder was part of like a bigger cult ritual type stuff. The association between the murder and the mention of the satanic cult activity is actually a recent one in the whole scheme of things. So it didn't happen during, I guess, the investigation. It happened later on into the years. So again, and also this investigation took place much further back, so keep that in mind. Investigators were able to locate and speak to a woman who was in high school during 1977 in Wilder, Kentucky, who stated that she reported learning about the Pearl Bryan murder within her history class. 
There was no apparent mention, however, of a cult activity or satanic ritual associated at the time. The woman recalls this as being a sort of rumor that did not start to gain traction until after the establishment of Bobby Mackey's music world in 1978. So again, kind of playing into the fact that I guess in a way that we mentioned earlier that everything kind of spiked upon the transition of ownership for uh, to Bobby Mackey. And this is another piece of evidence that things did technically spark and that kind of rumors got around around a building within town that, you know, it's old, it's creepy. And stories can kind of just go off from there, urban legends, so to speak. Furthermore, no news reports at the time made mention of a satanic or cult association, which would have been expected if such sensational details were at the disposal of this case. The lack of support in court documents and testimonies of all involved exponentially weakens the idea that Jackson and Walling were part of some secret, satanic, cult-like activity within uh, Walling, or Walling, yeah, no, uh, Walking Kentucky. So the current legends technically expand the idea of the basement, as well as the location as a whole, to encompass cult activities and multiple blood sacrifices, yada yada yada. Again, however, there's no evidence of any of this, and to be fair, it kind of leans and falls in line with the more panic that kind of ensued regarding non-existent satanic cults, like back in the 1980s. Back in that time, like, you know, people just kind of spurred about. I wasn't there back then, so I can't tell you this for certain, but definitely when I think of like, oh, cults and stuff, I think around that time period, but apparently a lot of rumors would go around that this sort of stuff is happening when it's not as far spread as you might think. I don't know. I don't, I don't study cults that often. I have a friend who does. Perhaps I should ask her about it. I don't know. Maybe we'll see. But I definitely do think of that time period when I think of cults or like satanic stuff. So the occult angle may originate from Carl Lawson himself, the former caretaker of Bobby Mackey's Music World, who we mentioned earlier, who claimed that he was demonically possessed by spirits at the club who informed him that Pearl's uh, murder was part of a satanic ritual and that her head was thrown into the well as a sacrifice. His story was recorded in the 2005 book Hell's Gate, Terror at Bobby Mackey's Music World by Douglas Hensley, the guy we mentioned earlier. Hensley claims that he interpreted the story as told to him by Carl Lawson. So Mr. Lawson appears to have related the paranormal stories at Mac, uh, to Mackey in the early days of the venue, so around 1978-1979-ish time. Though Bobby Mackey himself did not care for these stories. As we mentioned earlier, he wasn't really that strong into these sort of tales. He didn't really want them to take over his new establishment that he poured so much money into. And again, it seems that Carl is the real epicenter here, not the well itself. And Hensley's book was also credited by Mackey himself. Uh, as stoking interest in the legends and kind of blowing things out of proportion. So, unfortunately, though, well, like wrapping all this t- sort of stuff up, Lawson did pass away in on January 26th in 2012. 
So unfortunately, no one can really further interview him, further interview him to like get more details on the story. It's sad that he died and stuff, but it it seems like he sort of I don't even know the correct word for this. Kind of incentralized all this stuff to a proportion that it actually wasn't. I think he I'll get into the last story, but I'll get my word on it in the end. I this is what happened in the YouTube video. I I guess I did give an opinion, but it was based off empirical evidence after I was taught it. I uh, I always say that it's good to hear both sides of the story when it comes to the paranormal, understanding both the firm belief and the spe- uh, skeptics is a good way to like stand in the middle ground and really understand what's going on. I I don't think leaning either to either side is good. And and like it's it's like any spectrum. If you're too far to one side, you're you're going to be unbalanced. You want to be balanced in the center and uh be subjective. So moving along, we're going to be talking about the mysterious Joanna, the singer that we mentioned or, or the dancer that we mentioned earlier. Now, her name is said to be Joanna Jules, or sometimes just Jewel on its own. Basically, it's her stage name, and apparently, as the legend goes, she was a performer at the Latin Quarter nightclub in the 1950s, when she kindled a sort of romance with a man at the club named Robert Randall. Now, Maggie Torguides retell the story as Joanna becoming pregnant, and that her father had Randall killed, the mobster dad from earlier a lot of focus has also been applied to the coincidence that bobby mackie could be a derivative of randall robert randall i.e robert randall mackie i don't know about this so i just i just put that in there i don't know what that even means so to speak let alone if there is any connection between that sort of stuff but who knows so distraught that uh, her father may have killed her lover, Joanna killed herself in the dressing room. And now spooky, a now popularly spooky spot for visitors of the establishment. These days, however, the dressing room has claims in which people report the smell of roses again, as mentioned before with, uh, with Carl and how he kind of began to spot these ghosts. Once you enter the room, people kind of get that, like, scent just randomly. There are several stories regarding the life of Joanna Jules, one claiming that she was the daughter of the owner of Latin Quarters. From 1947 to 1961, however, the club was owned by the Cleveland Four, which is the crime syndicate that we mentioned earlier. So, as the head of the Cleveland Four, uh, there was Mo. Delitz, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, D A L I T Z. Uh, he didn't. He had one daughter actually. Uh, her name was Susanna. So that's the only like documented daughter. Oh God, my voice. Uh, documented daughter that we know of. Another claim by Bobby Mackey ghost tour uh, guides and people who retell this story is that uh, she was the daughter of Albert Red Masterson. The hitman slash mobster from earlier that was going to take out Buck, the previous owner of the nightclub before the Latin Quarter came up and was owned by the syndicate. However, birth records show that Red did not have any daughters named Joanna. And this particular, I guess, claim or rumor kind of surrounds the alleged journal that Joanna had and hid away that was found by Carl. 
uh, in which she mentioned her, her father and the word in quotes red with like a capital R uh, within the same sentence, which I don't know how that makes any sense. Like, I don't know how that links a very strong father and daughter relationship, but I guess if you're creating stories and like conspiracies and stuff, you just latch on to stuff. So yeah, the word red and father in the same sentence means it must be red Matterson. But there's no evidence to show that there ever was a Joanna that committed suicide via poisoning on the location. However, though, there is evidence to show that there was a Joanna who committed suicide. I don't know if it was via poisoning or not, but she did commit suicide. But the unfortunate thing is her name was Joanna Reagan, and she died at 44 Pike Road in... uh, Covington, Kentucky, which is a few miles away from the establishment, so not not in the building, not on the property, not near it. So, I mean, fortunately, she committed suicide, sad and all, but that's not the same Joanna. That's not even close to what we were originally trying to link back to the story. But there was technically a Joanna, just not the one we want. And I believe she did this back in 1914 or 1915. So decades, decades earlier uh, than when the establishment was made into a speakeasy and many, many, many years before supposedly uh, Joanna Jules would have ever been a dancer there. So again, it's kind of like finding finding the truth in a lie, so to speak. Like every, every, every good lie has a little bit of truth in there. So technically a woman named Joanna did commit suicide relatively close to this location maybe by poisoning maybe not we don't know it's back in the 1914 or early 1900s so who knows but there's a you know another story about a woman named joanna who's on the location who just died right from suicide because her mob father i don't know i'm rambling on i don't know what i'm doing (laughs) let's just finish this up because i want to talk about this stuff later so joanna reagan's death certificate shows that she was married and was a housewife not a dancer as well so just further evidence to prove that this is not the same joanna apparently a bobby mackey's tour guide did inform invest uh, an investigation group that his friend i don't know why whatever his friend has a copy of a death certificate with the name joanna jules Death certificates, however, are official documents, and therefore only her legal name would have been used, not a stage name that she used at a speakeasy. I don't know. I, I don't know why he would think that either, but maybe her real name is Joanna Jewell. Who knows? But therefore, unless this alleged document that you know this random tour guide says that his random friend just randomly has a death certificate from apparently a woman who died back in like 19 like 30s or 50s he just has lying around Uh, unless that's authenticated there's no uh, confirmed evidence to support Joanna existing so the foundation of Joanna's story stems all the way back to Carl Larson's claims once again As mentioned earlier, he supposedly found her journal hidden away in the basement. No journal, however, was ever produced by Lawson. He just never gave it. I don't know why he said he had it and all these stories were true because of it, but he never produced it. 
and he at this time was relating the information to Lensley uh, for his book. So he was talking to an author as if all this was fact. I don't know why the author didn't take it at face value. It was like, hey, I need a little bit of evidence here. But I guess he just wanted a really good selling book out there. So this part's a little odd, but this is stemming from the original people who did this uh, investigation. So kudos to them for finding these two two professors that I would never have known about. Uh, but Sarah Tung Sing and a former adjunct professor at UC Davis and Lynn Sims. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's L-Y-N-N. I don't know. I've never been able to pronounce that name. A linguist professor at Austin Pie State University. Uh, they both analyzed the alleged journal entries from Joanna as depicted from Carl's stories and like recountments of the journal. Because again, there is no physical journal for us to actually look at. The conclusion from both professors being that the authenticity of the entries are questionable at best, although both recognize that the entries are most likely paraphrased by Lawson. Again, he's reciting this from an apparent story, so we don't have the raw information. The content itself is dubious. You know, it's not... It's suspicious. Dancers in the early 20th century were not well-respected. According to the journal, Joanna allegedly lived at home with her parents. During this time, however, a woman would only live at home if she was not married or not employed. However, a job at a casino slash speakeasy slash mob ran club as a dancer would have been considered scandalous at the time, and so dancers would not likely to live would not be likely to live back at home with ma and pa. Additionally, many mobsters would keep their wives and daughters away from the business in order to apply some layer of a safety net to keep them away from all the violence. Now, it's not all mobsters, but you know, like you don't want your wife and children involved. So if apparently Joanna's mobster dad wanted her to, to keep her safe, he wouldn't just let her dance and be like a performer at his very mob heavy club (laughs) run by like four distinguished mob groups under like a syndicate so i don't know but that's what the professors uh brought about so it's definitely interesting to get some more insight into the quote-unquote alleged journal that lawson found so therefore to say that joanna was a dancer that lived at home and uh intermingled with her father's business it doesn't make historical sense. Additionally, in the journal, the entry makes note that her dad was, quote, or I'm reading this wrong. I'm reading my own writing wrong. The journal is stated as saying that her that her father had, quote, read kill people, which would seem to indicate that Matterson, as stated earlier as being like a potential father to Joanna, he had the title of Red, and she's addressing her dad as having Red kill people. So therefore, he can't be her dad if she's saying that her dad had Red perform hits. So it. I don't. Again, I don't. Again, people who want to make up these stories and kind of find some straw of evidence will latch on to very obscure things. 
So they thought that because she mentions my father and the word red, a title of a mobster who is known and is in document uh, documents to have been in relation to the location, they just assume that red was her dad, but it's technically stated that her dad hired red. And again, this journal is not credible in any sense. There's no physical journal. Now, people also potentially assume that her father was Buck Bradley, the owner of the club before the syndicate got uh, was it before the club was sold to the syndicate. That also would not be very well grounded because again, Madison was hired to kill Bradley. So if Bradley was the father, why would he hire Madison to kill Bradley? Just doesn't make any sense. And the last piece of evidence, and possibly the strongest out there, is again, there's no physical proof. There's no proof that the journal even exists in a physical, tangible form. I don't know why Lawson, I don't know, I don't know why people took this so seriously with Lawson. He, again, he was like a loner, I don't know, I don't know him personally, so I can't just say this type of stuff, but I would have been really skeptical if he was telling me this type of information. While it remains possible that there really was a dramatic story of a mysterious dancer named Joanna during the Latin Quarter years, documentations, however, that are either there or lacking of, we as outsiders to the original event and time are left to conclude that the story of her tragic life and the alleged journal in relation to that are kind of fictional, to say the least. The majority of the information released regarding the history of Bobby Mackey's and its haunting or haunted past has been done through representatives of the establishment, so workers, employees, guides. Its ghost tour manager up until 2004 and subsequent guides of these tours, as well as the former caretaker, Carl Lawson, all kind of contributed to this sort of stuff. The internet, however... Uh, is also oversaturated with retellings of this story and history over and over and over and over again. And believe me, when I was going through reports and articles and stuff uh, dating several years back, and even up until current, it's very, uh, like, very cut down and just very much like the same two stories over and over and over again. And for the most part, it seems like it's just taking Carl's point a view and like taking that as law so i don't know this specific investigator and 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 reports for these two cases uh both the pearl and joanna's case that i'm using as like a basis for some of the information that i'm getting i believe they were fairly accurate with this i have not found anything to firmly dispute any of like the major things they say I went through that like and even going through the comments of like people within there going back and like looking them up and like really getting a grasp of like their credibility and stuff I feel safe in saying that they can be trusted they, that they are credible enough to that their investigation of this documentation has some ground I'm not saying it's perfect I'm not saying that I know for certain because I, again I haven't been there but from my personal opinion as being like an outsider to this information and location I would take this as I would take this better than if Carl was telling the story himself 
So again, <laughs> to add to the wound, I guess, that this location sometimes gets, uh, multiple paranormal television shows have also delivered the same unconfirmed information to the general public. The Bobby Mackey's version, or I guess lack of a better uh, identi- a better term to say the least, of the history of the location is the one that is most widely circulated within books, internet, television, yada yada yada. However, through some very careful uh, research and choosing which source you want to really put your eggs into, one can most likely see that the true facts surrounding the Pearl Bryan case and the documented history of the location, including that of the potential Joanna, are pretty much inaccurate. And uh, they're kind of convoluted and kind of all over the place, pulling from different stories or events that happen near the location in order to form new legends. So based on the research, the claims of occult activity and the correlation of that with Bobby Mackey's and the Pearl case, they're unsustainable. As of right now, however, we're not really able to conclude whether or not Joanna Jules actually existed. Again, the biggest the biggest proof or biggest evidence is the lack of evidence, so take that as you may. However, learning about the backstory of the location itself, you are able to support the claim that this establishment has had a very violent and shady past based off the connections of both like a, like the a slaughterhouse and the crimes committed either near or relatively on the location along with the organized crime angle that has plagued the spot for years. So there is some some leeway I can give them in saying that this has a rich history. So who knows what that may have spurred. So professional, this is going to get, actually, let me just make this clear. So this is going to get into more of the physical aspects and maybe even potential explanations as to why there is so many odd occurrences on this location. So professional experts, both like scientists and uh, electricians and, and uh, uh, I don't even care a word for this, like trade uh, workers, uh, have concluded that it may be possible that the environment of the structure in place may produce natural phenomena that could be perceived as paranormal. The sense of unease, the restlessness, the fearful feelings, paranoia, hallucinations, and this sense of being watched when no one is around. Now, I personally have not been there again, but from people who have been there and have investigated the structure itself, they supposedly had found the following. The interior of the old building conclu- includes iron pipes, copper wiring, electrical equipment, exposed and cut old wiring, a large transformer, unleveled floors, which are the worst, water damage, a few solid concrete walls, Uh, there's also a power line directly over the portion of the building, and there's an active train track not more than 16 feet away from the back of the building, and it has trains running every single day. The foundation itself is also apparently not level and has a lot of open holes within it. So I can't go off and say that all of this is true or that all of this is going to explain some of the weird phenomena. The only one that I can say that could potentially link to something is uh, the train track one because 
I myself live in an apartment complex. I'm on the fourth floor, and there are four highly active train tracks within the city that are 10 meters away. For like, I could throw a baseball over all the tracks from the window of my bedroom. And I can say that unless you're paying attention, not every time the train goes by are you going to notice or understand what's going on. And sometimes it makes this weird buzzing sound. Like I'm assuming it's from the electrical wires that they use, but it makes this weird like buzzing noise. And if you're not familiar with it, you can kind of like be like, what? What's going on? So I can kind of see that potentially coming into play. I don't know, though. Obviously, it can't explain some of like the more severe things, such as people being thrown or things being moved. But I don't know. Uh, some investigators have suggested that the site is located along an active fault line. I'm not sure how I feel about this one because I'm not sure how they proved this. But there are thoughts that some paranormal uh, investigators have that activity can be linked to these sort of natural cracks within the earth. A review of the geological maps of the area by a geologist shows that the building is likely constructed on a limestone slate cope formation that slopes regularly when it's wet. So it just kind of moves a bit. But there's no map uh, faults anywhere near the facility, nor are there any like faults that are reasonably explained. So again, I don't know how they came to the conclusion that it's on a fault line especially it's like it's in kentucky guys like i think the closest one is in the atlantic or in virginia i think i don't know however this is probably the most credible one that i've they mentioned like i've come across in a bunch of things that people have mentioned but uh this is let me get into it so the on-site investigation uh recorded fairly high electromagnetic field readings or EMF readings for people who only know that within the paranormal field. In general, they're getting readings anywhere from 5.9 to 6 megajoules. So to put this into perspective for those who don't know what an EMF reading is because I didn't, well I did, but I didn't know like what a a good reading was. The Environmental Protection Agency recommends that you limit yourself to an exposure of 0.5 megajoules to 2.5 megajoules. And to get a better grasp, if you're standing about 3 feet away from a microwave, you can expect to be exposed to about 25 megajoules of uh, electromagneticism. I don't know what the correct word for it is. Uh, So Bobby Mackey's, the location itself, is giving off about 2 to 10 times the amount of recommended levels, depending on the overall range that you choose to base this off of. So at a base level, this place is giving off way more than what they, what government agencies recommend that you just expose yourself to, let alone constantly like are around. So if Carl's living there every night, every day, he's being exposed to this relatively unsafe levels so maybe that's why he's like the epicenter of all this stuff i don't know iron pipes may also enhance uh the tran and transmit uh the electromagnetic fields kind of like making it a little worse than it needs to be the high readings are not surprising considering the condition of the structure and the unshielded wires again there's electrical wires that go right over top There are thin walls and old piping. Again, it's a very old building. 
The existence of the transformer and train tracks may also affect readings, while but in paranormal terms and uh, investigations, usually people will take these anomalies into consideration when taking EMF readings, so as not to, you know, obscure the readings that they'll get throughout the building. But that being said, though, there's no, again, there's no firm scientific basis that EMFs directly relate to paranormal activity. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying that within the scientific community, it's not super strong. It can definitely be something to use, but I'm just saying, like, don't take it as indefinite proof. I don't know if anyone really does, like, to be to be fair. But the specific location of Bobby Mackey's, uh, along with various elements of the building's structure, such as the plumbing, electrical wires, and stuff like that, can present an increased possibility of extensive infrasound, which I learned about recently, I think I mentioned already with the Dark Watchers series, which may be responsible for biological and physical effects. This stuff freaks me out, so let me explain. Infrasound can also be the cause uh, for large moving and pulsing objects such as pipes, doors, speakers, furnaces, hot water heaters, vehicles, air conditioning systems, yada, yada, yada. Even like natural things like the wind or like storms. All of these stuff, uh, they can produce this sort of sound. Now, infrasound is the, uh, anywhere between 7 to 14 hertz, I believe which may have an influence on the human emotional spectrum and comfort levels at a location. So low frequency signals are said to possibly have a physical effect on objects. Uh, I don't know how grounded that is with research. I've just come across it a few times. And also cause visual anomalies, uh, but the role of infrasounds and paranormal experiences is still unclear. But research does find a connection between these frequencies, like these low tone frequencies, and they find a connection between them and a lot of the old homes and locations and houses and stuff that people claim are heavily haunted. So I'm not saying it explains everything. I'm not saying any of this explains everything, but it could be a slight explanation for some of like the minor psychological things that are happening. And it, a lot of the cases from what I've noticed, if you're exposed to this sort of stuff very frequently, very like often every single day, you're not, I'm not going to say you're going insane, but your mind's going to be a little bit more on edge. You might be a little more anxious. You might get stressed out. You might kind of hear things a little bit, you know, it's not like, oh my God, there's demons in my head, but you might like maybe just be like, did, did I hear that? Like you question something. So, and I'm not a scientist in this regard, I'm a, I'm a designer, but I have noticed that this sort of explanation has been popping up more frequently, and I kind of do like it. I like this idea, because it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. But again, it's not an explanation, it's not an end-all be-all for the stuff that happens at Bobby Maggie's. So as a conclusion, the events witnessed and reported by Bobby Maggie's uh, and the people within it appear to be heavily dependent on the psychological primer, so to speak, uh, around the legends of the location. So I'm not going to, I don't want to be mean to anyone, but the paranormal claims that both employees and people visiting the location, either through media 
or research groups and, and investigators. It's unverified, but like that, that's just like across the board. We all know that when it comes to the paranormal, like nothing's a hundred percent. Everything has to be like, even if you're real confident, you're only like ninety nine percent real confident. You're never a hundred percent when it comes to this field. Investigators have failed to really find correlations between public records of any such events that prove the legends as true as mentioned and through the research that these amazing people have found again i I don't know the name off the top of my head i don't have uh i have like two research documents one's physical one's on my computer i'm reading the one on the computer but they found evidence to go against the legend so maybe there is evidence out there that proves it but people who take these legends as truth, there isn't really any grounds for it. There's no connection between Bobby Mackey's and the Pearl murder having been on the location. Like, her head wasn't dumped there. There wasn't a satanic ritual there that we know of through, like, police investigation, which is pretty thorough. Or, I mean, pretty credible, I should say. Uh, and that's all through, like, you know, documentation and the reports of the time. Uh, the nightclub, however, was a spot uh, of like a lot of violence and potentially some murders and uh, just, just a lot of bad times. So maybe there's some ground there when it comes to some of the spirits. I don't know. But when it comes to the whole like portal to hell and the darkest spot ever and like the evil spirits all around, watch yourself. You're always going to have something happen. I think that's kind of been spurred on by popular shows like Ghost Adventures and like like things within the media and the internet age and not even internet age, so to speak, because Carl started this back in uh, the late 70s. But just the, the incense. Oh, God, I can't even think of the word. <laughs> just kind of like blowing things out of proportion is what I generally am trying to say. Is that like a story goes about and the story is linked to a creepy old building that has a spotty history, lots of ownership, lots of changes. It was a slaughterhouse. It was owned by the mob. It becomes understandable as to how people associated this with a paranormal claim and a paranormal legend. And I'm going to say urban legend because for the most part besides the reports of like really intense stuff like like spirits in the parking lot hearing full sentences and hearing um even like the the claims that people are being thrown objects being moved those i'll give a pass for for now because i can't prove those none of us can prove that unless we were there unless we have video proof so i can't say without a shadow of a doubt that those are false. I am saying that the legends with the like the things that really got the attention of this location I think came from Carl. I think all of this spurred from Carl. I believe that things just kind of got out of hand and the business, so to speak, because it is still a business just kind of went along i mean they're not denying that this stuff happens so to speak they are taking tours they're technically giving it like they're taking carl at face value 
and they're having tours very often. They're having paranormal themed events very often. A lot of investigators and TV shows will come in and keep like keep the story going every few years. You'll see it pop up in articles. Like like a lot of these articles I found, I had to like sift through because again, it was its 40th anniversary. So a lot of news sites, a lot of uh, blogs and stuff want to like jump onto that metadata, I guess, um, trending to pick up like pick up traction. And it's an easy story to pick up traction with. Again, it's 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 reasonable to believe that this location, this creepy old slaughterhouse turned club, could potentially like if you didn't know anything about Bobby Mackey's. You would go there and be like, oh, that place is totally haunted. And, like, just go by. Like, you would never know if you never went in there. But it's one of those spots where you can definitely be like, oh, that's definitely haunted, man. You know that old place uh, down on Pike Pike Road, you know? That old slaughterhouse? You know, like, that type of stuff. I can see how these stories got out of hand. I'm not saying that they're all false. And, again, <laughs> I, I said a lot of this when I did my YouTube video. Uh, and I'll say it again. I was a very, very firm believer that this was one of the most downright, like, haunted locations in the entire world, entire, all of America. This is a paranormal hotbed. This is a portal to hell. I believed everything. I believed everything at face value until I grew up and I learned more of the information. Now, in the YouTube video that I made, I also was a bit stricter. I, I was just very blunt with it, but... And I think I, I believe I mixed up some of the information and kind of misconstrued it when I was saying it back then. I think back then I claimed that a lot of it had to do with Bobby Mackey's, like Bobby Mackey himself. But now understanding that he was not a firm believer to begin with, I'm shifting my focus onto Carl. I'm not. I'm not targeting the man. I'm not targeting his claims. I'm just saying that. Instead of focusing on the well as being this epicenter, this this vortex and portal to hell, I think Carl is the center point. I think, and it, it's very much shown throughout the legends and the stories and everything, Carl's one of the first ones to see the ghost. Carl's the one, the very first person to speak to Joanna. Carl's the one who had spirits quote-unquote possess him and say that there was a satanic ritual that involved Pearl Brine. Carl is the one who discovered the well. Carl is the one who supposedly discovered the journal of Joanna later on, who never showed a physical journal afterwards. A lot of these stories relate back to him, and I think because of that, and just, I don't know if it's because of the times or whatever, it just kind of rolled off. And I'm rambling, I'm going off on this stuff, and I'm not, again, I don't want to be mean i'm not trying to be mean or cruel to people who believe in this stuff or believe firmly that uh bobby mackey is is without a doubt the most haunted location ever or just in general i'm not trying to demoralize you in any way i'm just saying from my understanding of the information i'm not even going to say opinion i'm just going to say my grasp of the information provided to me both as a previous firm believer of this location and the stories related to it, and now as a more matured and much heavily and a much more heavily researched person, I have come to the conclusion that this is not an indefinite haunting. 
Now, I'm not saying it is. I'm not going to say that. But for me, for me, based off of what I found, I don't know how I feel about Bobby Mackey's. I still love the location. I still love the stories. Don't get me wrong. I just don't see it anymore as the most haunted location. And that's okay. I I do would I still would love to hear some stories if you guys do believe that. I have had a few people reach out to me and contact me about like, "Hey, I was an investigator. Like you don't know, but like I didn't either until I went there and I stayed the night." Like that type of stuff. So again, I haven't been there. I wouldn't know firsthand. And I think in a way, because this stuff has been so incentralized throughout the years, so many people believe this. It's it's had so much coverage. It's, it's all over the place. I do believe that some of that could rub off. I believe that there's some sort of energy in a way that kind of is keeping some of these stories going. I'm not saying it's a ghost. I'm not saying it's a demon. I'm not saying it's some cowboy lurking around in the bathroom or in the basement I've had experiences personally in which feelings and, and, and like energy of sort can kind of fuel certain feelings and, and events. So perhaps that's what's happening here. And perhaps that's what's keeping uh, so many stories and claims when investigators go to the location today, keeping them fueled for further investigations in the future. But I don't know. I still want to see the location uh, myself personally, but we'll see. Again, I'm a very poor college student who is wrapping up senior year and struggling to finish his own thesis, but would love to go to Kentucky and uh, investigate this location himself. So I have been rambling on and giving my own point for plenty, plenty of time. I think this is going to end up being like the longest episode I've produced for you guys. I... I had fun uh, investigating. I had fun learning about the history. Not everything has to be just ghost stories and craziness. Sometimes it's good to learn about the backstory, learn about the documents, learn about some of the lesser things to get a better grasp of what is going on. And I had a lot of fun doing this. Again, I did a lot more thorough uh, deep diving, I guess, uh, than when I first did a research on this. (laughs) If you just look at the documents that I wrote up uh, the first one I think was like three pages and like a lot of it was just like talk about your opinion and now I have like 18 pages worth of notes and uh, and stuff to go off of so again I will be linking uh, the uh, sources and articles that I had used and found uh, in the description of the YouTube upload which will probably come out a bit later than the actual date This will be coming out, I believe, on February 9th, but the YouTube upload will probably be about a week or a week and a half delayed because I'm still backlogging that, that platform, I should say. But if you're on iTunes, Google Play, or Google Play, Google Podcast, (laughs) um, Anchor, Spotify, all that sort of stuff, and also actually uh, speaking of Spotify and Anchor, Anchor just got bought out by Spotify, so I guess technically we're on Spotify. (laughs) Like, we're hosted through Spotify now. But if you're listening to this on a more podcasty platform, you can find the sources and all the stuff that I'm talking about through my Twitter. I think I mentioned Instagram earlier, but I don't think you can really link stuff that well there. 
But you can find it on my Twitter. It's uh, at Realm of Unknown, and it's also Realm of Unknown on Instagram. But the links and, like, photos and stuff I will be posting on Twitter. So if you want to check it out yourself and get, like, the full story of what I drew from, you can see them there. And, again, you just follow me on those platforms. I'll keep you guys up to date on all the new topics and stuff that we'll be discussing. Again, we are on YouTube and also iTunes because I think people still don't know that we're on iTunes. I don't know. I don't know how to handle iTunes, honestly. It's a lot, and I didn't expect to be on there, to be honest. But you can find me there. And also, if you have your own stories or stuff you want to talk about when it comes to Bobby Mackey's or different types of ghost stories that you personally had, email me at realmofunknown at uh, gmail.com. I almost said google.com. But, uh, yeah, you can reach me there, and you can reach me on my social media, and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I will do my best to survive senior year and my thesis project and continue to upload every Saturday. And the YouTube uploads, once everything's backlogged, will come up every Tuesday following the original upload on Saturday. So again, I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you guys had a very fun time diving into Bobby Mackey's music world. And next week, I'm debating on the topic, but I shall say that it will be a fun one. I have three lined up. I'm not sure which one's going to go first, but each three are very exciting to me. And they're all really great locations and events. So I hope you guys enjoy. So remember to stay spooky and have an amazing time.